Please turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of the brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, in the glory, in the covenants, in the giving of the law, in the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all. God bless it forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Son of man, prophesy to these dry bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. What an amazing statement in Ezekiel 37, Father. Say to dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Dry bones can't hear the word of the Lord unless the word of the Lord creates life. So, Father, I pray that you would create life. Give an ear to hear, Lord, and help me to be a faithful proclaimer of the word of God. Don't leave me to myself and don't leave these people to yourself, O God. Without your Holy Spirit, I can't speak what I ought to speak or how I ought to speak. And without the Holy Spirit, we will not hear, feel, think. Believe, act the way we should. And so come, Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, make much of your Son, Father, by your Spirit. In his name I pray. Amen. I hope to remind you again and again and again in the months to come that following Romans 9 to 11 comes the practical chapter 12 and 13 and 14. And this chapter 12 begins with therefore, which means it's built upon everything that's been said so far in 1 to 8 and 9 to 11. And more specifically, it says, therefore, I beseech you by the mercies of God, which must mean That one of the main points, indeed, I would say the main point of chapters one to eleven is the mercy of God. So all these practical things like spiritual gifts, love, forgiveness, service, zeal, hope, suffering, prayer, hospitality, sympathy, humility, peace, vengeance, civil authority, drunkenness, Sexual immorality, quarreling, jealousy, and many more in these chapters 12, 13, and 14 are built on the doctrines of 9 to 11. Because they're followed by, therefore, I beseech you by these mercies that I've been unpacking and undergirding, I beseech you now, live this way. Mercy is at the center of these chapters. Let me just point it out to you in chapter 9, lest you think 
Paul was grasping in the air. Chapter nine, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 18, verse 18, chapter nine. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 22. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So three times in this chapter alone, he highlights the fact that we're dealing here with divine mercy. So when he gets to chapter 12, he says, therefore, I beseech you by the mercies of God, Live this way. We know that those practical, ethical, moral, nitty gritty chapters are built on these weighty doctrinal chapters. The staff spent 16 hours together Monday and Tuesday. And some of the weightiest hours were on the issue of. How can we help our church both individually and corporately and organizationally? How can we help us be more given to mercy, especially to the poorest of the poor? How can we do organizationally ministries of mercy, homeless and those without family, those without medicine, the sick, the dying? Those who are trapped in syndromes of seeming intractable dysfunctionality in home and in society so that things unravel where they live and in their families over and over again. How can we as a church be more proactive and engaged in ministries of mercy? And we reminded ourselves, Tom Steller especially was helpful here, we reminded ourselves that mercy... Practical deeds of social engagement and individual kindness are not icing on the cake of Christianity. They are fruit growing out of the tree of Christianity. And the reason that metaphor is better is this. Where there's no fruit, the tree sooner or later is going to be cut down. You might eat a cake without icing and benefit from it. But when a tree, year after year, bears no fruit, you get it out of the way if you've got an orchard, which is what God is building, and you make room for another tree. William Wilberforce, you remember him, the Christian politician 200-plus years ago in Britain, He wrote one book in his life, spent 40 years trying to overcome the lackadaisical attitudes of his British contemporaries to the African slave trade. He wrote one book about that. And in that book, he traced 
the casual devil may care attitude of most of the Christians in Britain towards the African slave trade. He traced it straight back to the abandonment of serious biblical doctrine. Now, if a preacher wrote this, you'd say, oh, of course, preachers say that their job hangs on it. They've got to get people interested in doctrine because that's what churches are about. This was a politician in the House of Commons for 40 years who never held any religious posts, never had any theological training. And he wrote this book and I'll read you the key sentence from it. The fatal habit of considering Christian morals as distinct from Christian doctrines insensibly gained strength. Thus, the peculiar doctrines of Christianity went more and more out of sight. As might naturally have been expected, the moral system itself also began to wither and decay, being robbed of that which should have supplied it with life and nutriment. End of quote from William Wilberforce. In other words, Romans 9 to 11, and let's include the first eight chapters as well. The ones we're working on now are the tree and the root. And they are to bear the fruit of dancing upon injustice, caring about the unborn, caring about racism, caring about the homeless. Caring about those outside of our own country who live in the most absolute poverty. No water. No food. On the brink of starvation. It is a wonderful thing when a Franklin Graham uses his energy and his entrepreneurial, God-saturated mind and heart to bring about Samaritan's Purse, which thinks up things like this. And I said when I preached on Isaiah 58, oh, that God would cause there to be in this church many entrepreneurial Christians who love to think up ways to solve pain. Especially eternal pain. With the gospel. But on the way there, just like Jesus alleviating as much physical pain and emotional pain and relational pain as we can do because that's the way God has treated us. So we spent a long time as a staff on that and I resolved that even though I'm going to be, I know, a couple of years probably in Romans 9 to 11 unless God alters things, I pledge myself to try to do a better job at bringing 12 and 13 and 14 in week after week. Because I know this letter was meant to be read probably in one church service. And here I am taking eight years to preach on it. So I know there's there's something out of sync here. All that practical stuff is down there in 2005 and we're just going to do theology till then. Wrong. That's wrong. I must figure out a way without somehow... Preaching in 12 and, and 9 at the same time, I've got to continually reach over there, like I'm trying to do right now, and pull in some of the, the offshooting, the fruit, the spinoff of these doctrinal chapters. So hold me to that, and I will try my best to not be a, a heady church for three years, and then a 
we'll get to the streets now for the next three years. It, it doesn't work that way. We must be both and we must get it together. So let's go now to that end. Let's go to chapter nine and know that in my heart I am singing and praying and and yearning that mercy would grip you in these years, days, months. That marriages would be transformed by husbands and wives being absolutely stunned that we have been treated by God with mercy. It will change your marriage entirely if you believe you deserve nothing but wrath and God gives you nothing but mercy in Jesus. And change your marriage. I am married to a mercy giver. And that's why we survive. I try to be a mercy giver. I hope I do a little bit of my part. One has to be a mercy giver. It's better if two are mercy givers. Or the marriage won't survive. Because you know why? We're lousy spouses. We will never measure up to the expectations of the other, nor they to us. And therefore, without mercy, they will all blow apart. And so I just long for our marriages, our church. What difference it would make if everybody you passed in the commons, you passed with this feeling. has to kind of happen early in the morning, maybe. I deserve nothing but wrath from God. And in Jesus Christ, I get nothing but mercy from God. Therefore, since I deserve nothing and get everything, how can I begin to treat somebody with anything but patience and kindness and mercy in the commons? So if we don't get mercy, if we don't feel mercied, we will never be ministers of mercy. And frankly, I don't think most of us feel as undeserving as we are and as loved as we are. Chapter 9, verses 4 and 5 are the focus for the remainder of our minutes. Let's read them. They are Israelites to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ that is the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. Now, why are these verses here? This is a list of nine privileges of Israel. Nine privileges of Israel. Why are they here? Now, there's a main answer to that question, a main reason why they're here. And there are three subordinate implications that have tremendous relevance to your life. At least one of them does. Let me give you the main one first. Why are these nine privileges of Israel mentioned in verses four and five? They are mentioned primarily to heighten the tragedy 
of verse 3. Paul is saying, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, are accursed and cut off from Christ. Now, last week, we, we came in hard on my kinsmen, and hundreds of you, with tears, were praying for your kinsmen according to the flesh last week. Now, what heightens that tragedy of the lostness of Paul's kinsmen is that they are Israelites with all these privileges. We're talking about the Old Testament people of God. Nine privileges they've had for 2,000 years. And as far as Paul can tell, the vast majority of them are pushing the Messiah away, pushing the Son of God away, pushing their Savior away, and accursed and cut off from Christ. And so when he lists these nine privileges on top of that information, the tragedy explodes in our face. It isn't just that... There's some blood relations here, and Paul is aching for an uncle or an aunt or a grandfather. It's because these are the people of God, and they're lost. Which raises an absolutely huge problem. How can God be faithful, trustworthy, powerful, loving, if his people are accursed and cut off from Christ? And he takes three chapters to answer that question. That is what Romans 9 to 11 is about. How can God be faithful to his word while the mass of Israel is lost? That's the first reason why these verses are here. They set up the tragedy and the problem to be solved in three chapters. And he begins the solution in verse 6. We'll come back to that. Here are the three subordinate Implications of these two verses. Number one. These privileges find their saving full significance in the life of an elect remnant of Israel. In other words, there are Israelites in Paul's day for whom these nine privileges will be completely fulfilled with all their saving implications. To see that, look at verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. It looks like the word of God has failed. Because Israelites are accursed and cut off from Christ, and they have all these nine privileges, some of which are the sonship. The glory, the worship, the Christ, and they're not saved. So how can God's privileges and promises be valid? Second half of verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now that means... That means there is an elect remnant within Israel, not the whole of Israel, not all those descended from Israel are Israel. There is an elect remnant in Israel for whom these privileges are savingly and fully true. That's the first implication. Here's the second one. Someday, 
there will be a miracle when all Israel will be saved. Headlines in Tel Aviv, massive conversions to Christ Jesus. I get that both from the present tense, they are Israelites. When he says that, plus all these other nine benefits or these other eight benefits, He's saying, even though many are cursed and cut off from Christ, it is still true that the Israelites are Israelites and have all these privileges. And then he says it explicitly in chapter 11, verse 26. So all Israel will be saved. And I'm going to argue when I get there, that means the ethnic Israel, the totality of Israel alive when this happens will turn to Christ. They will look upon him whom they've pierced. A nation will be born as in a day. Ungodliness will be banished from Jacob. And the world will be stunned as Israel turns to Jesus and is saved. Paul gave his life for that. You should give your prayer life for that. It will mean the end of the age, probably. When the hardening is lifted from Israel, the full number of the Gentiles is in. And the end will come. That's the second implication. The first was there's a remnant of Israel now, and there always will be. And they are saved, and all these nine privileges are savingly, fully theirs, experientially. And secondly, all Israel someday is going to turn to the Lord. Thirdly, Gentiles, and most of us in this room are in this category, Gentiles, by coming to the Messiah, Jesus, may be the beneficiaries of these nine privileges. Where do I get that? Well, I'll jump ahead to chapter 11, verse 17 following. Those of you who've read these chapters remember this picture. It's a picture of an olive tree, and the olive tree represents God's covenant people and his commitments to his promises and to Abraham. And it says that there are some natural branches that have been broken off. That's these unbelieving people who are cursed and cut off from Christ. And then it says to our absolute amazement, and he says it should humble us to the dust, us Johnny-come-latelys, us Gentiles who have no natural right to be in this tree are grafted like you graft a different kind of tree onto an olive branch and it works and the sap flows and all the promises come to us. Nobody will be saved unless they become a Jew. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus says. There's not a plan of salvation for the Gentiles and a plan of salvation for Israel. There's one plan of salvation for the covenant people of God with his roots, with our roots in Abraham and the covenant made with him. And this tree grows up and there are there's a breaking off. Many Jews do not believe in Abraham. Many Jews do not believe in Jesus Christ. And they're accursed and cut off from Christ. And then the good news, the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek 
And you can be this morning grafted in to the rich root of the olive tree that carries all the promises of God. That's the third implication of these two verses. Now, that should set you up to hear as I very briefly walk through these nine privileges so that you can hear in several different ways. If you have a Jewish wife, husband, friend that you love very much, hear these for them by faith in the Messiah. If you don't, ask that God would give you some. But if you hear them for yourself, and I pray that you would hear them for yourself. I want these benefits for me. Then just come to the Messiah. Let's start. Who are Israelites? Chapter 11, verse 1 explains something here. God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite. You hear what Paul's saying? God has not rejected his people, has he? Even though there are many accursed and cut off from Christ, he says, God has not rejected his people, has he? Answer, no, I'm an Israelite. In other words, there's always a remnant. There are always Jews who are going to be believing. And the good news for us Gentiles is Galatians 3, 7. It is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In other words, if you have faith in Jesus, the son of Abraham and the son of God, you are united with Jesus and become an Israelite. Oh, this is so important to get right. I would love to take a half an hour to talk about how to get this wrong politically. Because so many Christians are getting it wrong politically today. And the most recent message from bin Laden is telling us we're getting it wrong. But that's another sermon. Second, to whom belongs the adoption as sons? What does that mean? Nobody before Paul used this Greek word religiously. And only Paul in the New Testament uses this word, adoption as sons, huiothesia. Therefore, I'm inclined to think I should get the meaning of it from Paul and not from anywhere else. And the place where he used it most closely is 815 and 823. And it's all about salvation and belonging to God as a child. Let's just read 815. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's that phrase. You have received the spirit of adoption. You who? You Christians. That is, if Christ is in you, you belong to him. And this is true of you. And so Jew and Gentile alike are sons of God by faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Third, and the glory. There's a close connection here between the sonship and the glory, which is why I think the glory is not merely the Shekinah glory that rested on the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament. This is glory that is coming to sons. Let me read the connection for you in 818. 
I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The sons of God get the glory from God. So here we have a promise held out to you. You can have sonship, Gentiles, Jews, and you can have the promised glory of God for your everlasting enjoyment. Come to the Son and believe. Fourth, I'm putting together covenants and promises here. They're listed separately and in different places, but let's put them together. And the covenants and the promises. It's a remarkable thing that Paul says here to Israel belongs the covenants and the promises. And then he opens up the door to the Gentiles later in chapter 9, 10, 11. The plural promises and covenants means indiscriminately, they're yours. And here are two passages to increase your confidence that you Gentiles may be sure the covenants and the promises of God are yours. He's going to work for you in fulfillment of his covenants and promises. The first one is this. The new covenant fulfills and contains all the other covenants. And it is blood bought, according to Luke 22:20. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The cup symbolizing blood bought all the, the promises in the new covenant. So if you come to Jesus and embrace him as your bleeding, dying, substitute savior, you may have the covenants. You become an heir of Abraham and all the promises made to David and Abraham. And secondly, you can gain confidence from 2 Corinthians 1.20, where it says all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. If you come to Jesus and embrace him in Jesus, every promise God ever made is yours. Gentile or Jew. Next, the giving of the law. Is that a benefit? The giving of the law. It is indeed. And it was given to Israel for the sake of the nations. Listen to Romans 3.19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that's the Jews, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What happened at Mount Sinai when God gave the law was not just about Israel. It was to stop the mouth of every human being on planet Earth and hold us accountable before God. Because if the Jews, with all of their privileges, don't make it, nobody makes it. And nobody does make it by works of the law. Which is why the law had not only this accountability purpose, but a long-range saving purpose. What, according to Romans 10, 4, is the goal of the law? The goal of the law is 
Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. What the law was about ultimately was getting people like a tutor, getting a child, getting people to Jesus. And so if you get to Jesus, you get there with the help of the law of God. And so this privilege is yours. Pointing you to Jesus, pointing you to Jesus. The goal of the law is Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law will never produce righteousness in you. And you will never produce righteousness by it. Christ is our righteousness. And the law points us there with tremendous hope. Next, the temple service. This refers back to the ministry of the priests in the temple and in the tabernacle where they shed blood of animals for the sake of the forgiveness of sins and for the reconciliation with God and the acceptance with God. And he says, now that's yours, Israelites. And we step back and say, is that of any value? And the answer is, it is of tremendous value if you see what it's pointing to. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The most central temple service referred to in this word is the Passover. Exodus chapter 12, put the blood on the lintel, the doorposts, and they will pass over you and you will be saved. All of it pointing towards Christ. And now he says Christ has come. His blood is outstretched. It's on his head. It's on his hands. Will you look to him? If so, wrath will pass over you and there will be no condemnation of you. And so the temple service is ours in this sense. Christ ended it by fulfilling it perfectly at the cross. One more lamb had to be sacrificed, namely the lamb of God. And when he was sacrificed, no more. It is completely sufficient for every sin you've ever committed. Whose are the fathers? We have two more. Whose are the fathers? Why is having the fathers such a privilege to the Jews and to us who believe in Christ? Romans 11:28 gives the answer. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God, speaking to the Jews. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God. For your, you Gentiles, sake. In other words, when the Jews resisted the gospel, it spilled over its banks and went to the nations. They are enemies of the gospel for your sake. Now, here comes the crucial sentence. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. It's a high privilege to have the fathers. Because of election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. What does that mean? I think it means this. Once upon a time, there was no people of Israel. And God, in absolute and total, unconditional freedom, set his favor on a moon worshiper called Abram in Ur of the Chaldees. 
and made him his own. And when he had children, God freely chose Isaac, not Ishmael. And when Isaac had children, he freely chose Jacob, not Esau. This is what we'll get to in verses 6 to 13. I'm just paraphrasing 6 to 13. And what he does in that initial choosing of a people for himself is show he's not bound by any ethnic demand. He chooses freely who will be in the line of Abraham. And if we do not worship, he said this to the Jews, I will raise up from stones children to Abraham. That's how free I am. You can never box me in to owe you anything. But he has made promises to the fathers and he will keep them. And the promises made to the fathers are made to their descendants. And you may be a descendant by faith in Jesus and no other way. No bloodline, no parents, no uncles, no aunts, no church alignment. Faith in the seed of Abraham makes you one with him so that you in Christ become the seed of Abraham. And all the father's benefits promised to them are yours. Finally, and this is the best of all, Paul intentionally saves the most magnificent and unspeakable for last. From whom... That is from Israel is the Christ according to the flesh who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. What a privilege as a Jew to have the son of God, God, very God, the Messiah born a Jew. What a privilege. God became a Jew. That's offensive. That's very offensive. And God meant to offend us. So we get down off our high ethnic horses. And if you say, oh, but he didn't get Jews down off their high ethnic horse. Oh, yes, he did. And that's what these three chapters are about. Everybody is off his horse. When you're done with these three chapters, everybody is on the ground at the cross. Everybody is desperate for mercy when these three chapters are over. Jews are desperate. Gentiles are desperate. And God has his way of moving in and out of ethnic groups so as to pull the plug on everybody's pride. Red and yellow, black and white can be offensive in his sight. So woe to us. If we boast over the Jew, God hates anti-Semitism. And he hates the injustices done to the Palestinians by Jews. What a tragedy that when the son of God came into the world as a Jew, they rejected him. And to this day, a hardening is on the minds of Israel and a veil lies over them when they read week after week from the book of Moses on Friday nights at Temple Israel and Temple Aaron and all over the city. 
And there are dozens of Protestant pastors all over that city right there saying, it's okay, they've got their way to heaven. And we've got our Christian way to heaven. So it's just pride that says to a Jew, trust Jesus, because if you don't, you're lost. It's pure pride and arrogance. That's not what the Bible teaches. Paul didn't weep his eyes out for that. Christ didn't go to the cross for that. There's one way, folks. For Jews and Gentiles, all of us on our faces, desperate, with nothing in us that deserves any of it, pulling the plug on all anti-Semitism and all injustices. What a tragedy. And yet, I end on a very high note. Is it not the highest of privileges, owing to nothing in us, nothing in our ethnicity, nothing in our backgrounds, is it not the highest of privileges that by grace alone, through faith alone, my Savior and my friend is God. Blessed forever. Amen. Why does he put in this little phrase here, Blessed forever. What does that add to saying that from them came the Messiah, the Christ, who is God, overall blessed forever? What is blessed forever? Paul is soaring up into worship now. He's not just explaining. He's not just doing theology anymore. He's up into worship now. And what is he adding with the words blessed forever? Roseville, downtown. What does blessed forever mean? Here's my effort to put it into to words. It means that I'm finite and he's infinite, the son of God who is very God and very man, Jewish man forever. And since I'm finite and he's infinite and I have been drawn into his family, he will now in his infiniteness Reveal to me fresh mercies every morning because I can't take them all at once. I'm finite. He's infinite. He has more mercies than I can bear all at once. My mind would explode if he gave them to me all at once. And so for all eternity, morning after morning, his mercies will be new. And my mind and my eyes will see new mercies every day of eternity. And my heart will never tire of savoring these mercies with infinite satisfaction. And my mouth will never grow weary of singing the savoring of seeing these mercies forever and ever and ever. And I'm not even a physical heir. I'm just an old ragtag, Gentile, unclean John Piper who was picked up off the ground like a broken, rotten twig, brushed off by the mercy of God and the blood of Jesus and grafted in. That's all I am. So that the juices began to flow of life and hope and joy into my life. And they're flowing all too slowly. (laughs) I wish the graft took a little better than it takes for John Piper. But I believe it is secure because I think his hand is on it. And he will be on yours. It all hangs for Jew and Gentile on the Messiah. Will we come to Jesus? Will The temple Israel friends come to Jesus. Will the temple Aaron friends come to Jesus all over the city? Tens of thousands of Jewish people. Will they come to Jesus? Will you come to Jesus and experience these nine 
overwhelming, unspeakable benefits by faith alone. So, Father, we're one congregation, many in Roseville, many here. And I ask, Father, that if there are any Jewish friends among us, that you would incline their hearts to their wonderful, privileged condition into whose people was born the Messiah, Jesus Christ. All I want to be is a Jew, grafted into the promises and the covenant of Abraham as a latecomer, deserving nothing. Father, I pray that you'd graft in people all over this congregation here and there in Roseville. And Lord, make us a people of mercy. Make us invent ministries of mercy, corporately and individually, so that we display what it is to be loved by God.